0: Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday morning edition of Unexpected Points. I am your host and humble narrator through all of the craziness that was Monday Night Football. We had Russ's return. We had Gino's emergence. A lot of uh, Gino lovers, Gino truthers out there. This is like Christmas, uh, their birthday. Every other holiday, 4th of July, wrapped up all into one for Geno Truthers out there. So congrats to you guys. And we had the decisions. The decisions at the end. Many different decisions were questionable at best on both sides of the ball. But of course, we have the major, major decision to bypass going for it on 4th and five versus kicking a field goal a 64 yard field goal which would be close to although not the longest field goal in NFL history which Justin Tucker had a 66 yarder um, a year ago anyway we'll get to all of that I don't want to get too much into the decision stuff until the end I'll try to you know not chronologically but go through the big big picture stuff on the game first then we'll get into a lot of that stuff a little bit later on. Um, the we're also gonna get to Patrick Mahomes in the grading discourse that's going on out there. Uh pffer Jared Evans, who runs a lot of our social stuff, has a nose for what will be viral. And sometimes the most uh viral content is not the content because everyone's applauding you. And I think we could say safely that Chiefs fans at least and The larger football discourse complex out there was not applauding the Patrick Mahomes PFF grade in the 70s, uh, the eighth best grade of the week. Now ninth best. God, Gino. (laughs) Gino, Gino's on top of him this week. So now the ninth best grading of the week, despite the fact that his efficiency, uh, according to advanced metrics, at least the one that I follow, was off the charts good in this one and would have been his second best game of all of last season all right but I'll I'll get to the Mahomes stuff I have my opinions I'm not a PFF uh, I'm gonna die on a hill for the grading I think the grading has a purpose and you know I mix together some other stats that I like to look at and I'll tell you what those results tell me about what Patrick Mahomes did and also dig into why The grading doesn't necessarily match a lot of people's perceptions, particularly with Patrick Mahomes in this game. All right, but let's get to the Denver Broncos at Seattle Seahawks. Russ's return. Haters were in tow. There were, uh, I think Sherman was there. Marshawn Lynch was there. Others were there. Guess what? These guys don't like uh, Russell Wilson. And I'll get into some of the the Russ hate and the Russ discourse and maybe a little bit of a bad look for the Seahawks and how they've talked about Russ since he's been gone. But for the particulars of this game, I'm going to be going through some grading stuff, but a lot of it based upon advanced metrics, based upon EPA, so expected points added statistics, which will give you exactly how much on a play-by-play basis value is being added and everything can be equalized based upon that. And the foundation of what I'm looking at when we're going through these different games is the adjusted scores. For those who haven't followed the podcast before, I'll just mention really quickly that there's the actual score of the game. And then there's a score that I calculate where I'm making adjustments for plays that are less stable. So downweighting the less stable stuff that teams do. And then giving more weight to things the teams do, which are which are more stable. Primarily, the things are success rate versus actual points being added. Um, so, in other words, success rate is a little bit stickier, and then the outlier plays, where they're extremely bad plays, extremely good plays, are going to be downweighted a bit in this formula. Success rate being more important. Um, turnover luck in either direction. We've seen some teams will get a bunch of turnovers one year, not so many in the next year. Fumbles in particular, whether or not they are recovered or not. And in this particular game, I'll just tell you now, there were five fumbles, four of them recovered by the Seahawks, which helped quite a bit there. So that'll be part of it, the turnover stuff there. Third downs, which some teams can consistently be better on third downs, but on a game-by-game basis, teams have some extreme outcomes in either direction on those high-leverage third and fourth downs, which makes a huge difference um, in the game. And lastly, giving some more credit to teams who have a lot of drops because that's not normally going to happen. Giving some more credit to teams that have interceptions that are not turnover-worthy plays and vice versa. If you're having turnover-worthy plays and we saw that for Russ in this one, a couple turnover-worthy plays that we graded. One of them was a real big, huge turnover-worthy play, which was dropped by Quandre Diggs in the end zone. The other was a Jamal Adams play where he almost had a turnover, which we also call that a turnover-worthy play. So we're going to hit Seattle a little bit more for that, even though those, those didn't end up interceptions, if you reran this game, I don't know. If you reran this game a hundred times, you're going to get interceptions on those plays. Maybe not half of the time, but you're going to get interceptions on those plays a significant amount of time. All right, let's get to all of the scores here and all of the details for the game. So, Denver was a six and a half point favorite going into this. They lose by a point, 17 to 16. My adjusted score, so again, encapsulating all of these things we talked about, was Denver 24, Seattle 19. So, I had Denver's being slightly better in this game. Why? Well, on offense, they were more successful. Their success rate was in the 80th percentile versus the 65th percentile for the Seahawks. They were better as far as EPA was concerned, too, when you segregate out. Uh, fumbles, and penalties. When you say you're going to get those things out, Denver was a much more efficient offense, primarily because of what they were doing on the ground. If we look at their success rates, they were they had a 59% success rate on the ground versus 35% for the Seahawks. They were gaining uh, 0.12 EPA per rushing attempt versus the Seahawks losing point one four normally runs are a slightly negative play in expected points added so really big numbers for the broncos they're up in the 85th percentile for their efficiency running the ball and the 40th percentile passing the ball but you know what broncos were actually better passing the ball also which is a little bit weird their success rate was lower Gino was very successful. Gina, was completing passes left and right in this one he had a 82 percent completion percentage so they were really you know they never punted i don't think until very late in the game although they didn't have a lot of drives in that second half so they had a high success rate dropping back gino did higher success rate but the actual epa per play was lower that's because the Seahawks were hitting on big plays and the Seahawks also hit on a couple of big uh, DPI calls. And I give a little bit more credit to DPI than I give to other types of penalties as being sticky. Like I think the offense is earning that a little bit more than perhaps it's being earned with some other things like false starts and, and, and things like that that were just killing the uh, the Broncos in this particular game. So that's, that's a reason why they're going in there. again. The fumble luck or lack of luck for the Broncos only recovering one of the um, five fumbles that happened during this game. And on top of that, the penalties, which I mentioned, despite the fact that the Broncos got these big defensive pass interference penalties, they still lost a few points based upon penalties in this game where... You know, maybe that's sticky. Maybe that's not. But uh, I don't think they're going to be committing nearly as many penalties as we saw in this last game going forward. It was just an extreme, extreme number for them in this in this contest. All right, um, some more numbers that we can talk about for this particular game here. Both teams are actually pretty good converting on third and fourth down, which I was surprised by despite the despite the fact that fourth down was a disaster for both guys. The grading, now Gino, like I mentioned, an 89.5 grade, second highest grade of the week for him. Russ only at 53.4 because of those two turnover-worthy plays. Gino had no turnover-worthy plays. Um, the sustainability of what Gino was doing will be interesting to see going forward. He had again like you know 80 something percent completion percentage, so pretty good there. But what's interesting too is his A dot, his average death of target was only 5.1, which is a very, very, very low number. So that's something that worked here. We'll see going forward how much we can get from Gino in those, in those ways. All right, let's get to probably some of the decision stuff now. Can't avoid it too much longer. Um let me set the scene here at the end of the game. I mean, first we had Pete Carroll challenging a spot early in the series, which I believe was on third down. So it only would have forced the Broncos to have a fourth down and an inch sort of try, which didn't end up happening. So it was just like a really, really bad challenge to lose a time out there. So I don't know what was going on there. And then on the flip side, uh, You know, Nathaniel Hackett said, hold my beer here with some of his decisions to Carroll for the worst decisions possible. And the scene was, it was third and 14. The Broncos had the ball at their own 45-yard line. So clearly out of field goal range at this point. Minute and 11 seconds left to go. Uh, Completes a nine-yard pass to Javante Williams, setting up a fourth and five at the Seattle 46. And when the pass is caught there's a minute left to go. So I think when you're analyzing what the decision should have been here, you're not analyzing should they have gone for it on fourth and five with only 20 seconds left to go, which is what they did. They, they let the clock run all the way down to 20 seconds before calling a timeout there to set up the field goal, the 64 yard attempt, but the Broncos really had a minute left at that point. And, Calculating out the win probabilities can be a little bit difficult here. We have a few different sources that I'm going to go to to try to figure this out. Because ultimately what you're trying to discover in these situations is, is our win probability better doing X or is it better doing Y? Now, the win probability for one of the choices for kicking the field goal, there are less variables involved in that. You run the clock down you kick the field goal, you make it, you win almost hundred percent of the time. I mean, there would be a little bit of time left on the clock. It's a possibility that they could, uh, the Seahawks could get the ball back and get into field goal range back themselves and make another kick. But we're talking about negligible amount of time that's going to happen, you know, less than 5% of the time that's going to happen. So you say to yourself, we, we make the kick, we win. We miss the kick. We lose in this circumstance. And, Then it just comes down to what is your estimate for how often you can make this kick? And I think estimates for this could be all over the place. I'm not sure we have an exact number that we can go off of here. The first thing I'll point to is kickers were pretty good from 60 plus in 2021. Kicker accuracy is getting kind of nuts. We saw what Cade York did in week one where he bombed a 58-yard kick game-winning field goal for the, for the Browns that will look like it would have been, gone, would have been good from 68. Um, now, the record is 66 from Tucker. He kind of had a little bit of a running start there, but McManus has got a pretty big leg himself when, he, when he's kicking this. He made a 60-yarder last season. Not a 64-yarder, but he made a 60-yarder last season. So if you look at what happened last season, and there's going to be a bit of selection bias here because kickers aren't going to even attempt 60 yard field goal, unless they feel like they have the leg to make it. But again, I think McManus fits into this category of guys who can make that sort of kick. Kickers were four of nine, pretty good in 2020. In 2021, one of 10, though, so not quite as good. So if we combine these two together, it comes out to about a 25, 26% chance of making it. If you want to boost up McManus a little bit, maybe you could get it up to 30%. Uh, good weather conditions here. I mean, maybe the it's a bit heavy, the air in Seattle typically, but I don't think there was a problem first week, week one of the season. So that's probably higher than what a lot of people think. If we want to be generous, if we want to steel man the argument uh, to kick the field goal versus what you could have done the other side, we could say maybe there's a 25% chance that McManus makes this a little bit better than you think. I know we saw him miss two because we saw him miss the practice shot when Carroll tried to ice him and or maybe did ice him. Well, I guess he wouldn't have iced him if he missed the first one. Uh, he missed the first one and he missed the second one. So you could say he went 0 for 2 there. But if he would have made one of the next two, then he would have been at about that 25% range. So I think that's probably higher than most people think, the chance of making it. Um, but I think it's fair. Uh, now trying to figure out your win probability, because again, you're going to say it's 25%. That way you're going to take a little bit off for the chance that the Seahawks, after the field goal, take it down, score a field goal themselves. So you say your win probability, if you you run it down, kick the field goal is maybe like 23-ish sort of percent, let's say. So then you have to say, well, what's your win probability if you go for it in that circumstance? And the win probabilities are in a cluster, but pretty close together from different sources that I'm looking at. One, I looked at uh, Matt Davidow on Twitter. He runs a company or helps run a company called Deck Prism, which does in-game betting analysis. And a huge part of in-game betting analysis is going to be, is the team going to win or not? Who's going to win this game at any particular point? Things get a little dicey though at the end of games. Um, He had it as being a 39% win probability um, if they had called a timeout with a minute left and then tried to convert the first down. So that's a pretty healthy bar that would have to be reached if we're talking about kicking it there. So that means you're, you're looking at maybe like a 16 17% uh, gain in win probability by going for it. The good old Ben Baldwin bot, which got broken on this one because it doesn't even assume you can make a field goal from that far, but the Ben Baldwin bot has decent assumptions here if you're going for it. And unfortunately, it only has 20 seconds left put into this, but it puts a 34% win probability if you're going for it um, with only 20 seconds left to go. Again, they would have had a lot more time. They would have had more than a minute left to go if they would have called that that timeout earlier. And so you could probably raise that up. So it's probably approaching the 40% mark there too. And then Aaron Schatz, who runs Football Outsiders, he had it at a 36% win probability if they ended up going for it. So I think it's almost a lock that it was a better thing to do. Not that anyone is really arguing against that. But if you look at some of the numbers that are out there, like Schatz puts out a number here where he says the field goal likelihood was 7.4%. No, it's it's higher than that. I'm sorry. Uh, The way kicker's... Are, are nowadays Brandon McManus being a big leg kicker, the conditions that we saw in this particular thing here, I'm almost certain that it's higher than 7.4%. So I think that's a little bit of a misdiagnosis when you're looking at that. Deck Prism, for what it's worth, estimates a 27% chance of making the field goal, which is similar to what the numbers that that I'm estimating, and I'm going up here. But if you want to think about it just in a real, forget the analytics, forget the models that go into it. What's your win probability if you go for it or not? A really easy way to think of it is, okay, if we kick it here, it's it's let's say it's a 25% chance we make it. Um, what's our chance of converting this fourth and five? And the chance of converting the fourth and five is probably a little bit less than 50%, around 50%. But if you want to just be nice and easy, let's just say 50%. So, so that means we... of the time, we're automatically going to be wrong. So what we have to do is we have to be improving our field goal percentage, our chance of making this field goal. We have to be at least doubling that in order to make this the move that is worth it. So if you have a minute left, You pick up the first down, you're already getting within 50 yards, at least within 50 yards, probably closer for the field goal there. And you have time to run subsequent plays. You have timeouts you could run. You could probably pick up another 5, 10 yards. So if you bring this down to a 50-yard field goal, let's say, versus a 64-yard field goal, there is no doubt that you are at least doubling your chances of making the field goal. And that makes it a really, really easy decision. Now, Nathaniel Hackett, after the game, said that that was their plan when they were sitting at uh, third and 14. The whole time was, if we can get to X yard line, we're going to allow the clock to run down. We're going to call the timeout and we're going to kick it. Um, I I just really want to get inside of some of the decision making process that's happening here. Like, who is he talking to to make this decision? Uh, How are they deciding what it is? Are they assuming that McManus has what chance of making this, or is this just a situation where you're maybe watching McManus in, in practice before the game and he's bombing these 65 yarders consistently. And that is just your mental line for where you're going to put it. And you're perhaps not including in enough of these, uh, you know, external factors like pressure in this particular situation as to what you're going to make the decision uh, there for Nathaniel Hackett, but you know, not great, not a great way to start there for Hackett in this game um, for that type of decision. So what do we think about Gino? Let's talk about Gino a little bit more here. Gino dunked on me a bit in this because according to my quarterback rankings going into this, the fact that he hadn't done anything in the last five years beyond some spot starts last year where he was okay, had him down near the bottom of my quarterback rankings. And then this week, If you look at how well he performed this week, according to my rankings, which mix EPA and um, so mix advanced stats like expected points added. It mixes that with um, grading here. Gino was. Seventh as far as his performance so far this season, so. I think Geno truthers need to calm down a bit here. Again, I don't think it's a sustainable model, completing 80-something percent of your passes at a 5A dot. But at least on the positive side, he was getting protected pretty well in this game. We didn't see much of anything from Bradley Chubb or from uh, Randy Gregory until the end of this game where Chubb had a couple of sacks, one of those being a strip sack, which again, the Seahawks were able to recover, which helped them quite a bit here. I'm seeing some market movement already for the Denver Broncos down being about a 10 point favorite against the Texans next week. I think the Broncos were fine in this game. Like I said, they were a high success rate offense. They had some problems defensively, but it started to come together in the second half. They started to get pressure in the second half. If anything, I'd probably be buying the Broncos off of this, especially as this is a game where they look like they were the better underlying team outside of the turnover, poor turnover, luck, poor fumble, luck and penalties that happen in this game. Um, so that's something to look for, look for going forward. The problem, though, for the Broncos is just you're just behind the eight ball in this division. You are going to get a little bit lucky, at least initially early in the season. You have Kansas City going against the Chargers. So the two teams who won out of the divisional uh, games so far. So there will only be one team who is two and zero. Uh, either the Chiefs or the Chargers going into this. So, you know, the, the Broncos, others can get back into it. But, you know, losing a game, losing a game where you were a six and a half point favorite is a little bit tough to take going forward when you just really need to be at the top of your game in this division, in this conference to end up making the playoffs. Um, one thing I want to talk about is kind of some of the rust discourse that we had. And it's not just going into this game, the booing, whatever you want to make of that. Fans will be fans. You know, sometimes people are going to boo. Uh, It's fun, right? It's kind of fun to boo the opponent. Uh, At the same time, there's been just a steady stream of, I won't say disrespect, but maybe lack of appropriate respect for Russ. And I'm someone who's called Russ overrated a couple of years ago, coming off of, the 2019 season when everyone was seeing him as a potential equivalent to Patrick Mahomes. But I think it's flipped back pretty far in the other direction of a general idea that, you know, people just love to pick out the things that are negative about him. I get it. He has this cheesy stuff that he does. Um, You know, everyone likes to, you know, slightly make fun of his, you know, let's ride, let's ride, let's ride. You know, Mr. Everyone's using that from Mitch Trubisky. Mr. Trubisky, first of all, you're not allowed to to you're not allowed to dunk on a uh, future Hall of Famer. But uh, so, so you know, it went from Trubisky to other Seahawks players that were there. As I mentioned at this game, it seemed like I don't know if it was encouraged by the organization, but, you know, Doug Baldwin kind of hates Russ. It seems like uh, Sidney Rice, Richard Sherman were all on the field there. Uh, I think Marshawn was there, but I'm not sure. Uh, These guys flat out don't like Russ. We kind of know that from how they've said things in the past. And some of the things that's happened, you know, beyond the booing, beyond what we saw last night, some of the things that happened this offseason, also I think it's a little bit of a bad look for the organization because there's been a few different missteps. Number one, when he was traded away, you had the Seahawks. They they tweeted out, uh, "Thank you, Russ." And then the PR for the Seahawks followed this up by saying, by you know quote tweeting what the, the what the Seahawks sent out. They followed it up by saying, um, and I'm just going to bring it up here so you can see it here. They followed up by saying. Thank you to one of the best Seahawks quarterbacks in franchise history. One of the best Seahawks quarterbacks in franchise history. Uh, I love Dave Craig. Dave Craig was a a man. He was 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 a great quarterback. Uh, Not exactly a Hall of Famer. As I went over in my quarterback GOAT series, you know, Russ is going to be, by the time he finishes, he's going to be a top 20 guy in total value added for them. If you look at Hall of Famers, even on this team, I mean, Richard Sherman is going to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, and he hasn't retired yet. So he's going to make the Hall of Fame. Other than that, Cortez Kennedy, uh, Hall of Famer, Steve Largent, Hall of Famer, and Russ is an obvious slam dunk Hall of Famer. So if you look at the, you know, maybe you could say who's the best player amongst those. I don't know. You know, let's not talk about, talk about best, but there's no doubt at all the most impactful and valuable player in Seahawks franchise history has been Russell Wilson. Yet, you know, he got only one of the best in in france history there from the seahawks pr and then after that when they put these statements out uh when the seahawks put these different statements out from jody allen the the ownership group pete carroll and john schneider they just could not stop saying over and over again you know jody allen starts her statement with while russ made it clear he wanted this change and then she goes into everything else that they say there about russ uh for pete carroll it says here, as Jody stated, Russ's desire in doing something different for the octave. So then, you know, hitting it, Russ, Russ, Russ wanted this, Russ wanted this. And then later, also for John Schneider, it says, when it became evident that Russell was interested in playing elsewhere. Yeah, I get it. He may have been interested in playing elsewhere, but especially from the ownership, the first thing you mentioned, while Russ made it clear he wanted a change, he made Seattle. Why, why are you caveating your entire statement? This is the best player in your franchise, most valuable player in your franchise history. Just suck it up, suck it up and just put some praise, you know, put some respect on Russell Wilson's name here. Um, And there's also this weird thing that has gone on for a while now with Seattle where maybe it's part of the general thing of not quite understanding Value versus whether a player is good and what that means for a team and a franchise, because if we even go back to years ago, there was an article that always stuck out to me. Um, it was a Sports Illustrated article. It was called "The Dynasty That Never Was: Inside the Unraveling of the Seattle Seahawks." This was an article written by Greg Bishop and Robert Klemko over at uh, Sports Illustrated, and. The thing that was interesting about this article was that there was just a lot of disgruntled people, it seemed like, within the organization, not just, you know, mostly the players we're talking about here, but it was really like Russ is getting favoritism from Pete Carroll. And they really saw this organization as being and this team as being a defense and running team, I think they probably the players, not Pete Carroll as much, it sounds like, but probably the players fell into some of the same trap that we saw with Russ in earlier his career where we saw him playing a certain style of play and then discounted the extremely high level of efficiency that he was playing with. I mean, what matters at the end of the day, and I know everyone wants to say, oh, Russ doesn't throw the ball over the middle of the field. The Russell Wilson offense is hard to execute. He takes these big drops and then he takes sacks and he makes things difficult for his offensive line. But the dude put up numbers and put up efficiency. That's what really matters at the end of the day, no matter what you think of him or the style in here. I mean, there's some crazy stuff in this article where you hear about players who legitimately think, and it seems like quite a few of them think here, that Pete Carroll was so protecting Russell Wilson that he decided in this game in the in the Super Bowl that he decided to let Russ throw what would have been the game winning play from the one yard line there are players in here. See, so look at, right here. It says the players say the call contradicted what Carroll always had said publicly that he wanted to run the ball and play great defense. That's how he built the Seahawks. Several players felt that Carroll said one thing and did another in this game. And then later on, they're saying here uh, the MVP thing is they think that maybe. Pete Carroll was doing this to let Russell Wilson be the MVP to boost his stature, to take it away from Marshawn Lynch. That's the reason that, it, that he called that play. I mean, it's kind of insanity. And I know it, it, like, again, Sherman chancellor, Avril, were they talking here? Marshawn Lynch, all great players, but all guys, these guys are all out of the NFL at this point. If you're a franchise who's going to hit your wagon to your quarterback who may be cheesy, may rub some people the wrong way. I get it. Are you going to hitch your wagon to your quarterback who now just signed a five-year, $250 million extension, still in the NFL, still playing at a high level? Many seasons after that, when the Seahawks defense fell off a cliff, this is a team in the Seahawks that still was winning 10, 11, 12 games with Russell Wilson leading them there. This whole idea that Russ didn't deserve this sort of treatment because he wasn't as high of a level as this t- as a team that was a defense and running based team is just nonsense. I mean, there there's a there's a I can't remember who the coach was, but there's a statement of you don't treat players equally, but you treat them fairly is what you want to do. You don't have the same rules for your best players as you do for you know the undrafted free agent who's trying to make the end of your roster. You just don't. And if there are different rules for Russell Wilson than there are for some of these other guys, that's fine because he's worth it. And I think it's really the other player's misperception that was feeding into them thinking this wasn't fair how Russ was being treated as opposed to a reality there. I mean, it's not a great look that all these former teammates of Russ don't seem to like him, but at the same time, I think it may have been their misperception of what was going on more than anything else. And then the last straw I'll mention about the organization and what... I think has been a little bit distasteful um, going on here at the end of the year is there's an article that just came out on ESPN on September 7th, where it was called Inside the Russell Wilson Seattle Seahawks Drama that Led to the Denver Broncos Trade. And as part of this, they're saying in this article in multiple different places, they're saying that he was falling off. People inside the organization thought that he might've lost his ability to scramble and to get out. And as an older older quarterback who relies upon his legs, that he might've been falling off a bit. I mean, yeah, he was, his numbers were falling off a bit, but to say he's not Tom Brady, he's not that type of quarterback, the type of quarterback who ends up playing very, very long. He's not Drew Brees, another quarterback who's playing into his 40s. So therefore he can't keep on going. I think it also ignores some evidence of what we've seen in the NFL, whether it's Doug Flutie playing into his uh, early forties, um, whether it's someone like Fran Tarkenton, even way back in the seventies, a very similar type of player to Russell Wilson playing very well, winning an MVP at 35 years old, continue to play well into his late thirties. I just thought it was weird to like, what what motivates the organization to take these shots at Wilson after he's left? I feel like if you're a football organization, it's your job to take hits. You know, it's not your job to to anonymously leak at players in the media, even if they're doing the reverse back to you. Because um, I think that'll pay off dividends in the future with players when they see that you're not that type of organization going forward. So again, a little bit dissatisfied by the fact that you have anonymous front office people uh, saying bad things about Russell Wilson in these articles. Just let him go, let him do his thing, let him, you know, ride off literally, I mean, and figuratively, into into the sunset there uh, to his new team without having to dig in in him, in, into him in the future. Um, again, slightly bad look, in my opinion, for the Seahawks. All right, let's get to add time before we explain and break down the grading of week one that everyone was up in arms about uh, for Patrick Mahomes in particular. We're going to talk DraftKings here. The NFL's opening week was action-packed and is just getting started. Get ready for week two of touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. Want more action? Everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings early win promotion. It's simple. This Sunday, bet on any NFL team to win. And if your team leads by 10 points, At any point during the game, you get paid instantly, even if your team loses. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PFF to get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code PFF, only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See description for details. And one other thing I'll mention here is PFF app. If you haven't checked it out, Fantasy Football Guys Betting people. Uh, the tools there are just really gone next level here, especially for fantasy football start, sit questions, rankings, everything else there. All the advice you're going to get from the fantasy football side from myself, Ian Harditz, Nathan Yonke, those guys there. Uh, the app is free to download and use until, you know, you know as of right now, five star review, and we'll go ahead and we'll read out your Super Bowl prediction. If you leave a five-star review with that prediction, the best ones will be read out on this show. All right, let's get to the grading, and uh, l- let me bring up. I got—I gotta find—I gotta find my man Jared Evans who stirred the pot here a bit, and then I got—I got I to see what sort of numbers we're talking about so far for for Jared because um, he was stirring the pot here to put to put out the. Um, the uh, numbers for Patrick Mahomes, that everyone was going to to go nuts here. And the reason is he listed off the highest grading of the week. Man, this guy tweets a lot. I can't even get to it here. Um, ah, here we go. Finally, look at this. Wow, numbers here for my man. Uh, 1,941 quote tweets. Six hundred eighty-four retweets here for for Jared, and I think that his his he lists off the QBs rated so far: Josh Allen number one at ninety-one point five, Kirk Cousins eighty-five point one, Ryan Tannehill eighty-one point one, Justin Herbert seventy-nine point eight. Jameis Winston, that's going to sting some people above Patrick Mahomes. Seventy nine point six. Lamar Jackson, seventy six point eight. Jalen Hurts, seventy six point eight. And then Patrick Mahomes. Actually, there's like a teardrop there, down at number eight at seventy one point five. And again, he'll be number nine after we have um, Gino Geno coming in here. And you know the quote tweets. People were all over this one. I don't need to see the inner workings. Your you know your rankings are trash. Uh, Nick Wright getting in on the thing here. Um, They recognize it's flawed. ESPN recognize it's flawed, but they changed it. Maybe they should do the same. Nick Wright again, a double tweet from Nick Wright. I guess he's a, he's a uh, Chiefs fan. Everyone else is just going, oh, who do we get here? Shannon Sharp. Everyone's, man, this is really, every, there's a lot of, it's like blue check city going on here with everyone jumping in to this thing. Okay. Let me, let me, let me get to what's going on here with the grading for Patrick Mahomes. First, right up front, anyone who listens to this program on a regular basis, and if you don't, welcome, um, you're going to be, you're going to be happy if you're kind of on Patrick Mahomes' and the Chiefs' side of things when you hear what I have to say about it. But it's going, it's going to be, um, it's going to be, you know, couched somewhat with what what is happening here. Um, the thing is that the grading looks at certain things. I have said it's more of a throw grade than it is a total process, decision, everything sort of grade. The difficulty of grading pre-snap what's going on, the difficulty of grading you know, what the reads were, whether or not the right read was being made, the difficulty of grading who made a mistake maybe in between receiver and quarterback, you know, someone run, running the wrong route and you can't even necessarily know that, which ended up throwing off the process, all those things like that. Just very, very difficult to get an idea of what is causing that. So what you can grade a little bit better is the accuracy, of the throw. And that comes into it a bit. And I think you'll see that PFF grading aligns fairly well with something like a completion percentage over expected number. I was looking at the numbers from Next Gen stats which comes up with, you know, depth of target, receiver separation, everything else and it says how well how good of a pass was this versus what you would expect? How often was it being completed versus what you expect? And some of the names at the top were some of the names who had their, our highest grades of the week, like Josh Allen was up there. Uh, Gino Smith was near the top. Patrick Mahomes was, was up there, but still he was, you know, around 10-ish sort of range as opposed to the fact that his efficiency, his touchdown to interception ratio, all those sorts of things, extremely high. Um, extremely high number, much, much higher than his, than that number there. So that's part of it. Um, the grading scale also has to be attributed into this here is a scale from a negative two to a positive two on any particular play and anything that is graded a negative one or lower. So you can, there's half point, um, steps here. So it'd be a negative one, a negative 1.5, a negative two. Those are considered turnover-worthy plays. What we call big-time throws when it comes to passing is a positive one, a positive 1.5, and a two. So the range outside of that is pretty pretty narrow. You can either have a zero grading on a particular play. You can have a a positive 0.5 or a negative 0.5. A lot falls into that. I mean, we're talking about like Patrick Mahomes during – that whole game, we we graded him with one big-time throw, which was a uh, pass over the top to Kelsey. And we graded him with one turnover-worthy play, which was in the end zone when, I can't remember, as one of the backup tight ends had to jump over the top and kind of disrupt the play there. Initially, when I spoke to you guys yesterday, I thought there were zero turnover-worthy plays. It looks like that was reviewed, and, and Mahomes was given a turnover-worthy play on that, on that play. So out of all the plays Mahomes made during the entire game, only two plays end up filling up, you know, six different slots on the scale. And then the three remaining slots, what happens with our grading is you want to lean towards not making too many decisions on this. And what ends up happening is a lot of plays are just graded zero. So when Patrick Mahomes is scoring these touchdowns on a well-executed play that perhaps the receiver was not well-covered, so it didn't have to be a pinpoint accuracy type of pass. When Mahomes is executing those left and right and left and right, some of that because he's making a great decision on where to go with the ball, which is tough for us to to see. Some of it because of the scheme that's being put together. But still, he's executing that scheme on a very, very high level, so we should give him credit for that. But a lot of those, we're just saying that's a zero on the play. High value plays for the team – executed by Mahomes are getting a zero. And when he's doing, you know, the sidearm passes, other stuff, that's not really going to be put as much into the grading as it would be on people looking back and and thinking about it. So I think that's a big reason why we saw Mahomes last year. I think he was 11th in our grading for the season um, in this week. So far, he's ninth versus much better performance, but in prior years, he was first and second multiple times. So, I think the truth lies somewhere between what we're seeing for his expected points added efficiency and what we're seeing for his grading. And that's why when I do my quarterback rankings, I bring those two together because expected points added is going to have better um, weight assigned to all these different types of plays, like being very harsh for sacks on expected points at it because they are a very detrimental play to an offense much more harsh than what we're looking at for our grading. I think our grading only grades quarterbacks negatively, you know, 40 ish percent of the time where we know from, you know, research and other things that sacks are kind of a quarterback stat. It's hard to assign particular sacks to quarterbacks. Like when Joe Burrow's getting sacked seven times, it's hard to give him full blame for those sacks unless they're egregious but you know he's got to get rid of the ball quicker but how do you sign that on a play-by-play basis when it's not obvious so Mahomes is a guy zero sacks that he took we're probably not giving him enough credit on grading but he's getting a lot of credit with EPA there just a well-executed throw which has a lot of yak after it grading we're not going to give him as much for it because the throw itself is not that impressive but maybe the process is really impressive which comes through in EPA um, when you're, when you have turnover worthy plays or interceptions, you know, if you're, if you, if it's a turnover worthy play, it's a turnover worthy play in our grading. That's it. There could be particular situational aspects where if it's third and 15 and you're down by however many points, if you have a turnover worthy play, trying to make a big play, it's not as big of a deal, but that'll also kind of be reflected in EPA because in a third and 15 situation you have low expected points going into it. So if you, if you have a turnover in that situation, your expected points that you lose is also lower. So it's health reflected in that. So that's why I bring those two together. And just to give you guys a little bit of a preview for quarterback rankings that I'm putting together today that are going to come out tomorrow, Mahomes in my 2022 so far, how well has he done quarterback rankings, ranks second behind Josh Allen. So he's not first because his grading is lower. But he's not eighth or ninth like his grading is going to be either because I bring EPA into it. And it's not just something where I'm just randomly throwing these numbers together. I mean, I've tested uh, completion percentage over expected, PFF grading, EPA per play, and all trying to figure out what is going to tell us what's going to happen in the future the best. What's going to tell us what a quarterback's. Efficiency is going to be in the future because that's what really matters. I mean, MVP for quarterback is almost always the most efficient quarterback on the basis of expected points added per play, um, adding actual value, real point-based value. So, in projecting that, doing a mix between grading and and past EPA per play is actually better at projecting future EPA per play than just using EPA by itself. So there's a method to this madness, too, of using grading, even if we don't agree with it, even if we think grading is maybe a worse metric for um, judging quarterback play, whatever your opinion may be on that, it has value because it's measuring different things that are being missed within uh, expected points added or other quarterback efficiency metrics. Bringing them together gives the best projection. And that's second right now. So you'll see an article come out tomorrow and maybe people will be applauding. Maybe they'll still be booing the fact that Patrick, Patrick Mahomes will be second on that list, but I think it will match up maybe a little bit better than what some people believe the PFF grading was for the particular week, because you will see Mahomes up there slightly behind, um, Josh Allen on the week who had the best grading for week one, but also, had the second best efficiency of week one. So Alan will get a bit more credit there than Mahomes, but right next to each other going forward. All right. I hope that was edifying for everyone here. I'll be back on Friday morning to do review of the Thursday night football game. If you enjoy what you're hearing here, go ahead, rate, review the pod. Follow me on Twitter at Kevin Cole PFF. Otherwise, I'll be talking to everyone On Friday, have a great rest of your week.